Well, we come this morning to the fourth and final Sunday in the season of Advent. And during this Advent season, we have been celebrating by remembering and by observing, focusing our attention on four characteristics that are traditionally associated with this season. Not only focusing on them, but trying to cultivate them uh, within our lives. Uh, these four qualities represented uh, by the candles that are part of the Advent candles. Uh, we have already looked during this season at hope, love, and joy. And this morning we come to the characteristic of peace. Our passage this morning, as it has been throughout the season, is found in Romans chapter 5, where each of these characteristics is listed, some of them several times we see how they not only are listed individually, uh, but how they are intertwined. And in the context of this, in Romans 5, we see how each of these characteristics is related to God's redemptive plan uh, in His Son, Jesus Christ, whom we celebrate during this season. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Hear the Word of God. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation the word of our God. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come, we give thanksgiving for the season that focuses our attention on your gift to us in the person of Jesus. We give thanks to you for this word that turns our attention and gives us understanding of the reason, the reason for which Christ has come to reconcile us to you to be at work, to produce joy, to express love that we may love, and to give us peace. I pray that as we consider this word this morning, as we consider your promise and all that is ours in Christ, that our reflections, our meditations, and our response would all be glorifying to you. Shape us, cultivate within us, the peace that surpasses understanding, the peace 
of Christ within all who believe. We pray to the glory of your name and the good of not only your people, but the good of the earth that you have sent your Son to redeem. We pray all things in his holy and incomparable name. Amen. We come this morning to peace. It's a tremendous understatement to say that we all desire peace, but it is a statement that is important that we make. Jerry Bridges, in his book, Practice of Godliness, writes this, Untold millions of dollars are spent annually in search of peace. He's recognizing that everything that we do, we do for peace and for joy and the joy that comes and accompanies our peace. It is peace and joy that together motivate us to do things or to pursue things or to endure things. We do the things that we believe will ultimately bring us peace, and with that peace, we would experience joy. Many of us have illusions of peace, that momentary experience of peace, and yet, inevitably, those illusions of peace are eventually shattered for every one of us. What is this peace that we are looking for? What is this peace that we are hoping for, that we are longing for? I mean, it seems to be a a reasonable question that if we're going to try to pursue something, if we're going to invest in order to gain something, if we are going to try to cultivate something, that we might have some idea of what it is that we are are trying to, to get and that we ought to have some idea of where it is and how it is that we can find it. So the question is, what is peace? Now, in our world, there are really seeming to be two common ideas of peace that permeate the culture, the thought process, much of what we see uh, in media and just in everywhere that we turn. Uh, one of them is, is kind of an external peace. The other one is, is an internal peace. Sometimes these two things parallel one another, uh, but a lot of times they both scream out as if they are the answer, that if you have the one, uh, then you will have the other, that if you have the external peace, well, then we will feel good on the inside, or if we have the internal peace, well, then that will lead ultimately to a, a peace uh, um, and goodwill among men. The first, the external peace that we might call a a geopolitical peace is really what is the aim of what most of us kind of imagine whenever we think of uh, the Miss America pageant or the contestants there. Anytime you see them kind of caricatured in a movie or in some other kind of venue and they're asked, what is your desire? If you could give the world one gift, that's almost inevitable that the answer is going to be world peace. We're never quite sure if the caricature of the character knows exactly what they're looking for or what they're talking about, but we have this idea that it would be a ceasefire among nations, that there would be no more armed conflict in the world. That's the kind of peace that John Lennon imagined. I mean, think about the the lyrics to his song. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. 
Nothing to kill or die for. And no religion, too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. See, what Lenin is dreaming of and what he is propagating, what he's, he's declaring and he's recruiting for is people who have this idea of a pacifism that would be brokered by geopolitical peace, that nation states would drop their arms and they would somehow come together more than just dropping their arms, that there would be no more countries, there would be no more lines, there would be no more uh, divisions, and there would be, therefore, according to his idea, there would be nothing to fight for, there would be nothing to kill for, there would be nothing to die for. We would, therefore, in the absence of armed conflict, we would all live in peace. And that's what it is he's promoting. And it, in, in many ways, it's, it's a beautiful picture. I don't want to minimize that. War is ugly, and it's destructive, and we are far better off at times when we can not be at war than when we are living in the midst of a war. But it's an incredible promise. He's essentially saying, and this idea is that if we were to stop world conflict, then we would live at peace. The problem with that thought is even if somehow there was a day that there was no conflict going on in the world, how's that going to affect the argument that you and your spouse had this week, or the one you'll have next week? How does that ease your heart about the interactions you're going to have with extended family over the next few weeks, or the pain of not being able to gather with your extended family over the next few weeks? The absence of war is a, is a wonderful thing, but the promise that is made associated with this dream of this idea of peace is still somewhat empty. There can be total peace around us, and we can still be a mess on the inside. And so there are those who recognize that while the absence of war would be a good thing, Peace doesn't come from our environment. Peace comes from within. And so we would see those who are proponents of an inner peace, a therapeutic peace. It's the idea that if we have the sense of inner peace, if we have a sense of a self-worth, of self-fulfillment, and of self-satisfaction, and if more people had that, if most people in the community or most people in the world had that inner peace and self-satisfaction, then the world itself would be at peace. And there is some truth to that. Emotional health is an important thing. Recognizing that you have been made after the image of God and therefore you have dignity and you have value is a vital thing. And there are people, men and women, who give their lives to helping you deal with things that would rob you of that inner peace and to reestablish it. But the fact of the matter is, even if you have that inner peace, even if most people had that inner peace, it is a very fragile and fleeting thing. Imagine for a moment that entire community would be able to live with this kind of peace, the sense of self-worth, the avoidance of conflict with other people. Imagine the community would gather together and, and live their lives this way. And yet it is still very susceptible to being blown away 
even if there is only one person who enters that community who doesn't have it. I was thinking this week of situations like that, and you can pick up the newspaper and you can see any number of instances where people essentially living or acting in peaceful ways and everything is blown up by one individual. My mind went back to several years ago to an Amish community in central Pennsylvania that was in the news. I mean, for our culture, the Amish are probably the best representation or idea that we have in our mind of people who choose to, to live at peace. They live amongst themselves. They just want you to leave them alone. They are pacifists. They don't engage in war. They don't engage in politics. They just live their lives according to their standards and, and try to raise their family and live amongst themselves. And so imagine that everybody in that community had a sense of perfect peace. And yet, one day, a man from a neighboring community who didn't have any sense of peace with himself walked into that schoolhouse, that one-room schoolhouse, took out his gun and blew away a number of the children. There was no peace for those families that day. They were admirable in the way that they responded and extending forgiveness to this individual and to the family of this individual. They were responding, and yet they still, every one of them who lost a child would have been dealing with the anguish and the pain and the injustice of what had just taken place. That doesn't just go away because you say, well, I ought to have peace. And even those who didn't lose children they now, the peace that they had has now been disturbed like a rock that gets thrown into a still pond because it still is affecting the ripple effect. They now recognize that they live in a very fragile world, that their peace can be ripped away from them in just a moment. Both of these ideas of peace are, are beautiful and they are good. There is much that is good with them, but they are both a shallow and superficial expression of the peace that God intends for us. They are both reductionistic expressions of the promise of the gospel that God would restore the peace as he made it in the beginning and that that peace would be restored in full. You see, the biblical idea of peace is not rooted simply in external or internal as if it's one or the other, but it is a holistic. The biblical idea of peace is rooted in the Hebrew word shalom. It's a word that is used 237 times in the Old Testament. And almost every one of those times it is translated in our English Bibles as peace. And even in the New Testament, which doesn't use the Hebrew word, it uses a Greek word, a different word that doesn't have the, the full connotation that the Hebrew word has, there is no question among scholars that those who were using the word peace in the New Testament, perhaps especially the Apostle Paul, but all of the writers of the New Testament who came out of a Jewish background, they would have had shalom, the idea of shalom that is shaping their idea and the use of the word peace. The question is, what is shalom? What is the understanding of shalom? Now, shalom is sometimes shorthandedly 
described as the abs uh, as the, the presence of everything that gives you peace and the absence of everything that will rob you of peace. And while it is somewhat shorthand, if you think about it, it is a comprehensive uh, definition. It is a great picture. But shalom is even more complex uh, than that. If you were to go home and to look on your shelves and take off your shelf your, your volume of the Theological Dictionary of the Old Testament, well, one of the volumes, it's a 15-volume set that traces the etymology of every word in the Hebrew Bible, but if you were to go home and take that volume off your shelf and look up the word shalom, here's what you would read. Shalom has a semantic breadth that cannot be conceived adequately by any single English word. Shalom is a, a state of being, unimpaired and unthreatened, of ease and security, of felicity and wholeness in the broadest sense. So shalom is a holistic word. It reflects well-being in every aspect of life, social, relational, emotional, psychological, intellectual, environmental, economic, any aspect of life, it talks about the well-being. And it's not just a well-being in every aspect of your life. It is the intertwining of every aspect of your life. It is the, the harmony of those things, the wholeness and harmony in every respect of creation. And this is what shalom is. Now, where did the Jewish people get their idea of shalom? From the Garden of Eden. See, when God made the earth, he created everything good and everything in perfect harmony, everything fitting together and flourishing. The peace of the garden was much more than the absence of armed conflict. It was much greater than Adam and Eve having good self-esteem. There was wholeness and there was harmony in every aspect of their lives. There was shalom. So what happened? The answer is sin. Having perfect holistic peace wasn't sufficient for our first parents. They wanted to be equal to God. And so although they had everything, and they had everything good, and everything good working together, they were not satisfied. And so they did what God told them not to do. God had warned them that you now have everything if you eat from this tree, you will now know the difference between good and evil. People wonder what God was holding from them. But think about your own life. If you had the choice of knowing good and evil, which we need to know because we need the wisdom because evil exists, but if you could know nothing but good, wouldn't that be preferable? Isn't that what peace is? And so they had that perfectly, but that wasn't enough, and they'd sin entered into the world, and shalom was disrupted. 
the theologian Cornelius uh, Plantinga in his book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, says that sin is the violation of shalom. And he puts another way, sin is the vandalism of shalom. God has made everything beautiful, everything good, and he has given it to the people that he created after his own image. And then our sin enters the world, and not only is sin, but our sin as we live out of the condition that every one of us is born into, and God's peace, we vandalize it. You might see traces of it, but it has been disrupted, it's been disturbed, it's been vandalized. And so it's important that we recognize that sin is not just an individual problem. We tend to think of sin in terms of the effects that it has on us and maybe the relationship that we have with God, but it is sin that also caused our first parents to be at war with one another. Think about what happened. After the sin first came, they began pointing fingers at one another, the first marriage conflict. It was because of that sin that their children ended up into the first armed conflict with one killing another. It's because of sin that that began to spread from person to person, community to community, culture to culture, nation to nation, and throughout the world, where sin now permeates the world, and so therefore there does conflict, and there does the erosion, the violation of shalom, therefore is the the vandalism of shalom. Sin is not just an individual problem that Jesus was born to take care of for us, that he came, he died, now we're forgiven, and so now we're reconciled to God. Sin is that, and it is much more. I appreciate the definition of sin that historian Richard Lovelace offers. Listen to what he says. Sin is an organic network of compulsive attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors deeply rooted in our alienation from God. In other words, sin is not just what we fail to do that we should do, and when we do what we shouldn't do. It it is that, and that is something that we individually and universally need to be aware of, own, and to deal with. But it's an organic network, meaning it's organic, it's alive, it's a network. And so the sin and the different broken parts of my life work and kind of network together to create even more chaos. And then the sin in my life networks with the sin in your life that creates even more conflict. And then the more people that you have, the more of the mix you have that's that's networking, the organic chaos, the organic idea, and it shows itself in the erosion of our attitudes, our beliefs, and then ultimately our behaviors, all of which are driven by the broken root because it's rooted in our alienation from God. The one who is the source of peace, the one who is the source of everything good, that's been broken. And in the longing for that brokenness and in the brokenness of our own lives, we live out sin that is not just about the way we relate to God, but the way that we relate to one another and the way that the whole world functions. Another way of illustrating kind of the whole interconnectedness is this. Last night as I was writing the final draft of the message, Carolyn was sitting on her sofa and took out 
some of her knitting. And I was reminded of an illustration that I heard long ago of the way that God had created uh, the world. And knitting, it is not about the individual thread or whatever, but in knitting, God, uh, something is taken and it is woven together until it creates one whole where everything is connected and interconnected. That's what gives it its strength. That's what gives it its beauty. That's what gives it its functionality. It's the, it's the interweaving of, of the yarn. And God created the world knitted together in beauty and functionality and perfection. And sin is the vandalism of that shalom. It's like somebody taking a knife to that which is knitted and then just scoring down and separating, cutting apart that which has been knitted together, which eventually begins to tear apart. And the more our sin, the more we pull, the more it tears apart, the more things are disconnected and then begins to fray. And what a definition of many of our lives. We feel disconnected, we feel torn apart, and our lives feel like they're fraying on the edges. That's what sin does to us individually, and that's what sin does to us societally. And if we want to experience the peace that our, song, our souls long for, we need more than a geopolitical ceasefire brokered by the UN. We need more than better self-help books. We need something to restore shalom. We need someone who is able to come and to re-knit the fabric that we have ripped apart. We need someone to come and fix the world and put it back the way that it was originally designed to be. And Advent is the celebration of the restoration of shalom. Advent is the celebration of God giving the gift the one who would be that restorer and an anticipation of the fullness of the restoration that is still yet to come. You see, when we unraveled the fabric and sin began to tear everything apart, God's response to that was to make a promise. And then peppered throughout all of the Old Testament, the prophets and the psalmists testify to the promise that God made of the one who would come to restore shalom. Listen to the prophecy, the prophecy of Zechariah from Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. A picture of Jesus entering Jerusalem on a colt, on the fall of a donkey. Here's what the Lord says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and, and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he, this king, the one who is coming, shall speak peace to the nations and his rule shall be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. The promise of a king who would come who would preach, proclaim, and rule in peace, and the reign extends from sea to sea to the ends of the earth. Listen to the prophecy of Micah 5 through 5. 
but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from the ancient of days, meaning it's been prophesied from the very beginning. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers, which is us, shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. That last phrase is vitally important. It also explains why the ideas of peace that are being propagated throughout the media and throughout the world and throughout politics are totally inadequate. The issue is not he is coming and is going to tell you what peace is supposed to be like and give you instructions and then you can follow them. He's not coming to give you an example of what peace is like, so if you walk in his footsteps, well then you will all have peace. The prophecy is he is our peace. He is their peace. In other words, if you have Christ, you are able to now have peace. Apart from Christ, peace in, in shalom is totally impossible. And what is being presented in the global utopian idea is a Christless kingdom, where they want the ideas of the kingdom without the king who reigns supreme in peace, with justice, with wisdom, and in godliness. I'm not trying to tell you about your political idea. If you think that it's better to run the world according to, you know, no nations or whatever, that's a political idea. But do not mistake what is being sold to us right now as being a, pre a prequel to the kingdom of God because anything that's being presented without Christ on this throne is garbage. He is our peace. And he's coming again because he has already come. This is what was being prophesied. And here from Isaiah, the, the passage that is very familiar, for to us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and the na his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It is he who is coming, and he who will bring and restore shalom. And he, as he reigns, and Isaiah goes on, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over the kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. See, this is God, what he is doing, what he has promised and what he has done and what he is continuing to do is that he has sent the one that he promised who is going to be the restorer of peace. He has come and he has restored that peace by reconciling us to God. And so we who believe in Christ have experienced the first aspect of that, but it's a necessary foundation because if we're not at peace with God, then all of our other peace is ultimately worthless. But he has restored that peace. And it's vitally important for us to recognize that Jesus didn't come simply to forgive us of our sin. Jesus came and is coming again to restore shalom, perfect peace between us and God between us and one another, between us and the world, and the world with one another, all will be at peace when the kingdom of God comes into full fruition. And God accomplishes this in the person of Christ in at least three ways, but I wanna focus very quickly on the three ways that must be understood and attached to this Christmas Advent season. The first of which I've already alluded to is that he 
Jesus died on the cross for our sin, which reconciled us to God. You see, it's vitally important that we recognize this, that unless the problem of sin is dealt with, there can be no shalom. And that is the problem with what is being presented. As beautiful as those ideas are of external and internal peace, unless that it deals with the issue of sin, unless sin is being put to death and is squashed, there can be no peace. But Jesus has come and he has died on the cross paying the penalty for our sin. By believing in that, we are reconciled to God. He died on the cross for us. And so when I said that it's important we recognize that Jesus didn't just come for that, he didn't come for less than that. But in addition to the fact that he came and died on the cross for our sin, he has constituted a new community that is called the church. We testified to it early in our service when we said that as we responsive declaration of our faith of, of Colossians 1, he is the head of the body, the church. The church is incorporated of all who have trusted Christ, who believe in Christ, who belong to Christ, who have committed their lives to Christ. That means if you are a member of any church that is faithful to the scriptures, you have signed up to live your life under the reign and the rule of Christ Jesus. And then Jesus also tells us the way that this new community is to function. And he even prays for it. We see the evidence of his heart and his desire for it in John 17 when he prays that we would be one even as the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are one. And throughout the instructions to his followers and for the church, we see that this new community is made up from people from very different backgrounds, very different ideas, all very broken, all bringing our own baggage, all bringing our own garbage, that in the world we would have be divided in many, many ways, and unfortunately we still are divided in many, many ways. But the gospel of Jesus Christ to become part, it says that there is nothing identity that we have, there is nothing in this world that it becomes a barrier to our relationship that is greater than the grace of our God. And therefore, we knock down every wall that would separate those who are from, uh, separate us from one another. The church is to be the people of God living under the reign of Christ, which is a reign of peace, knocking that down, reconciling, even when we annoy one another, sometimes quite extensively. And so he's created this community of those who are marked by the blood that was shed, that brought the forgiveness of our sin and reconciliation to God. And then the third thing, every person who is part of the new community, he has commissioned to become agents of his peace to this world. We are his instruments of peace in this world. It is wonderful that we have been reconciled to God and we now have peace with God. It is wonderful that we have a family and this family is beyond those that are gathered here or even watching. It encompasses people in every nation, everywhere where Christ is proclaimed. They are, we are one with them. And yet, we live in a world that is still absent peace. And in some cases, hostile to this new community. 
God's response is not to hide away in this new community, but for us to do what he did, to leave the security and to go into a world that is hostile and to become his agents of peace. And we do this in two ways, through word and deed. We go into the world and we declare the reason for the hope that we have, the death of Christ, the gift of God, that brings reconciliation with God, the forgiveness of our sin, empowers us to live the way that we are to live, empowers us to forgive one another, to live reconciled lives, and to grow more and more after what Christ, to be more and more what we're supposed to be. And then he's given us that community that preaches the gospel to one another, that we encourage one another and saying, look, this is your identity in Christ. And all the baggage that you have is not greater than what Jesus has done for you. We encourage one another, we build one another up. And then we deal with one another's pains and, and, and heartaches. And yet we go out together and we go out scattered to wherever God takes us. And we declare the hope that we have, we call that evangelism, that those who hear have the opportunity to respond and join this new community and to be reconciled to God themselves. In that life, there then is peace. For every person who comes, there is an opportunity, and the work of peace begins to work, and it begins to spread. But we don't simply go out and declare. We go out and we become the agents of peace as well. And so we go to those who the world despises and ignores and oppresses, and we extend mercy to them because they are created after the image of God and therefore are worthy of receiving dignity. And we give to them because God gave to us what we didn't deserve, what we can't earn, and which, if we could, we would forfeit. We give them mercy. And we stand for justice. Because the one who is reigning reigns with truth and justice. And so, therefore, we see systems in the world and in our community and in our culture that oppress people and those who are Followers of Christ need to stand against those and say they are wrong, they are not consistent with the reign of God, and we labor to undo everything that is unjust. Now, for some of you, that part of this message has made you uncomfortable. And the reason being is because there are some who have divorced that from the proclamation of the word, as if they can go out and stand for truth and justice in the American way, or truth and justice in anything but the American way, and as long as we have that, then we would have this peace that goes back to this external peace, and then we'll do therapeutic counseling, we'll bring the internal peace, and yet there is still no peace with God. You can give to people the full external peace and give them the tools of internal peace, but if there is no peace with God, there is no peace. And so the acts that we go out, the deeds of justice and mercy that we engage in, that we must engage in to be faithful to the call of Christ, must always be accompanied by the declaration of the hope that we have declaration of the good news of what is ours through faith in Christ Jesus. In word and deed, we become vessels to this world, and so we experience the peace of God individually because we've been reconciled. We experience the peace and encourage one another in the peace as we come together as the body of Christ. And then we go to this world that is anything but peaceful, and we declare that the peace that they long for has been provided. The peace that they are violating, even though in the name of creating it, it has come in the person of Jesus Christ who we celebrate this season. See, the celebration of Advent is a recognition that God has come. The Prince of Peace has already come into this world that is not as it ought to be. 
We live in this tension proclaiming the good news of what we have already experienced peace and yet still longing for that which is to come. But we long with expectancy, we long with hope, we long with joy. We experience peace even in the midst of the absence of peace because we know that Jesus has brought peace, that Jesus is bringing peace, and that Jesus will bring peace. Shalom shall be the rule. Father, we give thanks to you for the words of your scripture that point us to a peace that is greater than much of our comprehension, but is experienced and tasted now and one day would be restored to the fullness of our longing. Help us to enjoy what is ours, to grow in it and to extend it to others. Turn our attention to your faithfulness, to your prophecies in the past as we await the fullness of it coming in the future. May we wait not as those who are, are longing and yet doubting, but as those who are still longing and fully expecting. To the glory of your name, we pray in Christ. Amen.